Hello and welcome to Tyranny Today. We're recording it on the first Wednesday of April 2023. And it feels like spring, finally. It was a tumultuous week here in New York City, first with a visit by Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen, and then because of the indictment by the Southern District Court of Manhattan of the former U.S. President. The former event is more momentous than the latter. President Tsai spoke of Taiwan American Association in Midtown New York City, and it was a pleasure to listen to her perfect English, slightly British-accented English. She sounds a bit like those old-school Hong Kong intellectuals, sadly a class that is slowly departing. As for the orange man, I'm not sure why so many of my compatriots are in despair over this event. When a former government official, even an elected one, is suspected of committing a crime, then he or she should be offered due process and, if need be, indicted, as it has been the case so many times before with top government officials. Think about Luis Ignacio Lula, Michel Temer, Nicolas Sarkozy, Chen Shui Bien, Park Yen He, Chung Do Juan, Roteu, Alberto Fujimori, Carlos Menem, Carlos Andres Perez, François Fillon, Silvio Berlusconi. Jacques Chirac, Najib Razak, Akshin Shinawatra, Nawaz Sharif, Pervez Musharraf, Ehud Olmert, Joseph Estrada, Narasimha Rao, Suarto, Akuei Tanaka, Jacob Zuma, Alfa Conde, Alvar Uribe, and so many others. Why do we aspire to some kind of exceptionalism here in the United States if our institutions cannot even properly vet candidates for the highest office? I do not have an answer. So I'll only leave this as a question. Elsewhere, we had an important event in Belarus, where Vladimir Putin is planning to deploy nuclear weapons. It doesn't change anything militarily because Russia has already deployed nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad, which is further west in Belarus. But the decision is still rich in signaling. Putin is trying to kill three birds with one red star. First, to show that he's unhappy about American nuclear sharing that is the nuclear deployment in the Netherlands, Germany, and Turkey, which, in his view, contravenes the non-proliferation treaty NPT. Secondly, he signals to the Belarusian strongman that his autonomy is shrinking fast, especially following Lukashenko's big splash visit to Beijing last month. That's too much freedom for Moscow's liking, and the ruler from Minsk has been summoned to Moscow today. But the third and most important signal is that Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow was a fiasco from Russia's perspective. Not symbolically, that was a huge victory by Moscow's strongman, hot on the heels of his indictment in The Hague. But beyond the symbols, Beijing got what it most wanted, the green light to access the so-called Northeast Passage through the Arctic, where Russia functions as a mythological Cerberus, guarding access and hoarding its fleet of nuclear submarines. Since China cannot use the Northwest Passage, which is locked up by Canada, nor can it cross the North Pole, which is still full of ice pack, it has to rely on Russia to be ever allowed to use this strategically vital route as a passage to Europe and as access to the landmass of the Western Hemisphere, if anything, with missiles. And guess what? Putin gave away his biggest asset and offered green light to the Chinese presence there. In exchange for what? Well, not much. 
It didn't obtain a signature on the Power of Siberia 2 pipeline from Yamal, Yamal, where the Chinese participate in an LNG terminal, but this is different from a pipeline. And he most likely didn't get China to support him militarily with equipment for the war in Ukraine. That's now almost certain from this nuclear announcement in Belarus that is not to Beijing's liking, given that China is not ready for nuclear proliferation in Eurasia and fears nothing more than losing its nuclear edge over its multiple foes in East Asia. Now, let's get back to our main threat. The last two weeks, I focused on the ways in which Western democracies have tried to deal with revisionist powers, such as Russia and China. Two weeks ago, I dealt with the somewhat hypocritical paradigm of welfare transfer, or as they say in German, Wander durch Handel. And last week, I reviewed the strategy of appeasement and the various types of deterrence. Initially, I thought that I'd focus today on the theory behind the fourth strategy, that is containment, but instead of delving into historical precedents and the theory, I've come to a conclusion that it would be probably more helpful to first paint the picture of where we are standing in this context of Cold War II now. And then, next week, or maybe later, come back to discuss the theory and the precedence of containment precisely against this background painted now. Okay, ready? Let's go. So we say containment, but containment of what exactly? Of course, historically, is containment of territorial expansionism. To this day, as we have experienced since last year, this makes sense in the case of Russia. Russia still has this 19th century approach to expansion. It's hungry for territory, and more territory. After all, there is a reason why the country is so huge. And this obsession is deeply anachronistic. It rings very 19th century-ish. When you read Prussian and post-Bismarckian German ideologues, most of their writings are about territory or justification of territorial expansion. Friedrich Hatzel, Maul, Karl Haushofer, Ernst Thyssen, and many, many others. And of course, in Russia, Alexander Dugin falls into this category as well. But he's not alone in Russia. Even before he gained notoriety, back in 1992, the very liberal foreign minister of Russia, Andrei Kaziriev, offered the historically Catholic and Jewish regions of Western Belarus to Poland. And the territory-obsessed Russians to this day overestimate Polish territorial sentiment for Kresy, that is ethnically mixed but formerly Polish terrains in today's Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine. For a brief period in 1991, the dying USSR even tried to create a second Polish state in Vilenszczyzna, which is the Vilnius region of Lithuania, where much of the countryside was not only Polish-speaking, but also surprisingly pro-Soviet and quite reticent about Lithuania's independence. And today, Moscow's propaganda is spreading the myth in Russia that Polish troops are fighting in Ukraine because, of course, they are hungry for additional Lebensraum, as Germans once were, and the tiny, tiny suffocating country of Russia is to this day. To sum it up, containment of Russia means exactly what is being done in Ukraine stopping its tanks. But containing China is a different matter, because China's ambitions are not only territorial, but much, much broader, ideological, economic, and technological. Of course, there is a military aspect to this as well. Much of the Beijing-Moscow bromance is about creating a two-front dilemma for the United States, and that's despite a litany of difficult issues over which the two Eurasian powers remain at odds. It is our, 
and Ukraine's hope that Beijing is so dependent on European markets and on European technology that it will not precipitate a two-front conflict at the cost of losing Europe. Beyond clear cases of its near-border obsession, to use the Russian neologism, China tends to project power with its ideology, its economy, its credit, and its technological capture. None other than Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, captured it in a surprisingly sharp anti-Chinese annual letter this week. He wrote, China, using subsidies and its economic muscle to dominate batteries, rare earths, semiconductors, or electric vehicles, could eventually imperil national security by disrupting our access to these products and materials. We cannot seize these important resources and capabilities to another country, quote unquote. All of this is fairly obvious to the listeners of Tyranny today, but it is interesting coming from the CEO of a major bank. Last fall, Beijing, in an effort to enlist viable lobbyists in Washington, opened its internal market to the U.S. banks. This move, delayed for a quarter of a century, served a dual purpose. First, to open the prospects of new capital inflows at a time of heightened risk of capital flight from China. Secondly, it replenished the ranks of powerful China hands in the U.S., as many manufacturers have become disillusioned with market access in the PRC. But something must have gone awry between November and now, if J.P. Morgan has lashed out against the communist goons. The economic enmeshment between the West and China is often stated as a reason why containment will not work, that the West cannot contain one of the world's largest economies, etc., etc. But technological decoupling is certainly possible and is already happening. And Jamie Dimon, is pointing to something more comprehensive and more global. Indeed, while Russia is predominantly focused on its presence in European decision-making and possibly on the return to a Yalta co-decision concept or a post-Napoleonic concert of superpowers, of which it was one, China's goals are much more wide-ranging. China seeks to re-establish not a European system, but a new world system, where the so-called diversity reigns this multipolarity about which we spoke a couple of weeks ago, operates by isolating the U.S. from the EU and by breaking the international sanction system, not only vis-a-vis -vis Iran and North Korea, but more recently in the case of Syria's Assad regime. So, in fact, there are two arrows to Beijing's world remodeling thrust. One is divide the West, and the second one is split the South from the West. Of course, the military is one side of this, and I should learn more about this during my trip to Taiwan later this month. But beyond large-scale rearmament, Beijing seeks to achieve its ambitious plans with four weapons. I call them DDTT, Diplomacy, Debt, Trade, and Technology. Diplomatic thrust is mostly bilateral with advanced nations, and more often multilateral in relations with developing nations. The debt strategy, is mostly focusing on middle-income countries and, to a lesser extent, on the least developed nations. There is power in numbers here, especially when it comes to counting the pro-China votes and the UN. The trade strategy, on the other hand, depends on whether the trade partners are commodity exporters or not, as China is commonly trying to register current account surpluses with all of its trade partners or trade victims, but is unable to achieve this in relations with net exporters of raw materials. Last but not least, the technological side is what Jamie Dimon alluded to in his letter. It encompasses a whole range of key sectors, active pharmaceutical ingredients, commodity semiconductors, 
sourcing and processing of critical materials, large capacity batteries, telecommunication equipment, electric vehicles, solar infrastructure, and so on and so forth. Let us start with the first weapon deployed by Beijing, which is China's diplomacy. Here, Beijing's immediate goal is to export this ideology and make its unelected governance system globally acceptable. As I have mentioned, there are two facets to it, one bilateral and one multilateral. On the bilateral basis, China always seeks to exploit weakness. Let's take the example of Russia. As described in my conclusions from the Xi Putin meeting in Moscow, China is now exploiting Russia's weakness as the country has been sinking into the Donbass quagmire. What looks on surface as a give and take is really just take and take with Chinese characteristics. The give, that is giving Putin face by visiting him in Moscow, costs China nothing other than maybe image problems in Europe. But Xi Jinping clearly thinks that he can take that risk. As mentioned before, China wants Arctic access. It also wants direct access to minerals in Russia, which is a problem because it would undermine the oligarch system, where Oleg Dripaska controls aluminum and nickel, Vladimir Putanin controls nickel and palladium, Suleiman Kerimov and Marina Mordashova control gold, Roman Abramovich controls steel and vanadium, Iskander Makumodov controls copper, zinc, coal, and silver, Alexei Mordashov controls iron ore and steel, and Dmitry Mazepin controls potash. That's the system. Putin would have to do a lot of reshuffling to open some space for the Chinese here, and it is not clear if he has that room of maneuver a year before the elections. But remember, Russia is not negotiating with China in the spirit of give and take. From the Chinese perspective, it's always take and take, as I personally experienced multiple times working there in the 1990s. So, as much as we focus on China's military shipments to Russia, why don't we focus on the other direction? Russia's shipments to China. After all, Russia's armed forces are dented on land and in terms of surface-to-first missiles, maybe, but its navy, its submarine fleet, much of its air force, not to mention the strategic forces, have been barely scratched by the conflict with Ukraine, if at all. And China also wants Russia's submarine technology. It wants 90% enriched uranium for submarine fuel. It wants Russian Kinjal, hypersonic air-launched ballistic missiles. It wants Russia to stop selling weapons to pesky India and pesky Vietnam. And it wants Russia's reduced role in Central Asia, in particular in Kazakhstan, where Chinese banks are present at Astana International Financial Center. All this long list in exchange for what? For Beijing's continued diplomatic and propaganda backing for Russia worldwide. But while Russia is in a hurry, Beijing has all its time. This is a good position to be in the take-and-take diplomacy. Of course, it's not just Russia. To press its case globally, China operates the largest network of diplomatic missions in the world. Having recently edged out Taiwan from Honduras, the PRC runs 170 embassies or high commissions, several more than the US. It also has a record number of nearly 200 consulates, more than France and Turkey, which are respectively number two and three countries in this ranking. China's multilateral agenda, on the other hand, falls on the fertile ground of quote-unquote anti-imperialism. Anti-imperialism was an important element of the Cold War communist ideology, at some point even more important than anti-capitalism, as historian Stephen Kotkin reminds us. He's correct. Since Russia's and China's imperialism was successful among nations completely gagged and completely cut off from the outside world, such as Ukraine, Tibet, 
the Baltic countries, Eastern Turkestan or Armenia, it was the countries that have gained independence from the Western imperialists, mostly from the UK and France, but also from the Netherlands, Belgium, and later Portugal, that were most sensitive to the message emanating from Moscow, from Beijing, and from the non-allied nations, led by Belgrade, Cairo, New Delhi, Jakarta, and Accra. China today is stepping into this tradition, incorporating to the Asia-African crowd many of the South American countries that were not present during the heyday of the anti-Western onslaught of Cold War I. Back then, South American nations were run, with some exceptions, by right-wing or military dictatorships and were broadly aligned through emerge of convenience with the United States, supporting, for example, Chiang Kai-shek and the United Nations, at least until 1971. Today, many of these nations are very open to Chinese propaganda, giving the mythology of the Teoria de la Dependencia, according to which the alien West exploited the Latin American nations for centuries, generating coup d'etat and trampling the rights of indigenous people. As I was once told in Guatemala, Los españoles cogieron nuestro oro y la plata y nos dieron espejitos. It's a beautiful country, so if you have not visited, I strongly recommend. Oh, by the way, that means the Spaniards took our gold, they took our silver, and what we got in exchange were just little mirrors. So, how does Beijing leverage this tradition of anti-Western propaganda? Following the slow demise of the over-indebted Belt and Road Initiative, Beijing has shoved aside its checkbook and instead pulled out its forked tongue, lapping the lingo adopted historically from the non-aligned movement. Here comes the alphabet soup of China's global initiatives, respectively GDI, GSI, and now GCI. The first one, GDI, Global Development Initiative, Chuan Chou Fa Chang Chang Yi, was launched on September 21, 2021, when Xi Jinping addressed the 76th session of the UN General Assembly. This was an attempt to embed Chinese lingo into the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development by, quote-unquote, revitalizing global development partnership and promoting stronger, greener, and healthier global development. Coming from the world's largest polluter, it's cute. It's also beautifully verbose, charmingly lofty, and delusionally beguiling in its highfalutin hollowness. Xi Jinping's speech was entitled bolstering confidence and jointly overcoming difficulties to build a better world. In June of last year, Xi Jinping chaired the high-level dialogue on global development under the theme, foster a global development partnership for the new era to jointly implement the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. It's a mouthful, I know, but by October 2022, more than 100 countries and international organizations have expressed their support for the initiative, and 68 countries joined the group of friends of the GDI at the UN. Also last year, Xi Jinping announced Global Security Initiative for Chuanzhou and Chuan Chongyi. This one has so far failed to gain traction at the multilateral level of the UN. It reads more like a dictators and security paranoia. But since there are plenty of dictators around the world and also many would-be autocrats, it gets some following. Beijing itemizes here six commitments which sound even more hollow than the GDI. First, stay committed to the vision of common comprehensive, cooperative, and sustainable security with a holistic approach maintaining security in both traditional and non-traditional domains and enhancing security governance in a coordinated way, bringing about security through political dialogue and peaceful negotiation and pursuit of sustainable duty and security. 
Note here a very interesting expansion of the concept of security now open to new domains. There is no end to dictators and security, so expect the list to be further extended in future versions. The same stilted Leninist language continues in point two, which says, stay committed to respecting the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all countries, sovereign equality and non-interference in international affairs, are basic principles of international law and most fundamental norms of the governing contemporary international relations. As we know from the examples of Tibet and now Ukraine, through careful reading of China's 12-point peace initiative for Ukraine, once a territory has been captured by China or Italy, territorial integrity is sacrosanct, not before. So stay tuned, South Korea. Point three. Stay committed to abiding by the purposes and principles of the UN Charter. The purposes and principles of the UN Charter embody the deep reflection by people around the world on the bitter lessons of the world wars. There are humanity institutional design for collective security and lasting peace. And yet, China has so far refused to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, even though it blatantly violates the UN Charter. Point four. Stay committed to taking the legitimate security concerns of all countries seriously. Humanity is indivisible security community. Security is one country should not come at the expense of that of others. We uphold the principle of indivisible security advocating the indivisibility between individual security and common security, between traditional security and non-traditional security, between security rights and security obligations, and between security development. This dual concept of legitimate concerns and indivisible security has been borrowed by China from Moscow's playbook, and is the only truly new addition to the vocabulary developed in the 1960s by the non-aligned movement. Interestingly, this fourth GSI commitment includes a misguiding sentiment. We believe all countries are equal in terms of security interests. Well, not sure who defines them, though. For example, Beijing has been trying to define security terms for Seoul. In a recent repast prompted by the rapprochement between Japan and South Korea, China criticized South Korea's plans to proactively accelerate its participation in Defense Pact Quad and the Chinese foreign ministry said that the country's concern should do more that is conducive to regional peace and enhancing mutual trust rather than provoking confrontation and engaging in small leaks. Number five, stay committed to peaceful resolving differences and dispute between countries through dialogue and consultation. War and sanctions are no fundamental solution to disputes, only Dialogue and consultation are effective in resolving differences. Abusing multilateral sanctions and long-arm jurisdiction does not solve the problem, but only creates more difficulties and complications. This one is very interesting in that it betrays Chinese economic insecurity and its vulnerability to Western sanctions, which are put on pedestal as tantamount to kinetic wars. It's very revealing. Finally, point six. Bear with me. 
stay committed to maintaining security in both traditional and non-traditional domains. In today's world, both the intention and extension of security are broadening. Security is more interconnected, transnational, and intertwined. Again, return to this question that threats to dictatorships could emerge anywhere, at any time. And we have to be vigilant. It's a curiously globalist, almost Trotskyist idea. The reason for this GSI is that Beijing's sense of insecurity is real. Some Chinese analysts generally fear that the Ukraine war was provoked by the West to finish off Russia, and that once Russia is defeated, China will be next. Hence Beijing's commitment to Russia, with a commitment that carries a very high price tag, as we have seen before. Interestingly, among the GSI implementation ideas, ERC itemizes geographic areas of interest, and these appear in the apparent hierarchical order. First, ASEAN. ASEAN, which is loaded for Asian way of consensus building, including non-traditional security areas. The capture of ASEAN has been a long-standing objective of Beijing, and Jakarta's recent pro-Chinese tilt, unseen since the late Sukarno era, is a good testimony to this. It's also very threatening to Southwest Pacific and to Australia in particular. So ASEAN first. Second, the Middle East. The Middle East, quote-unquote, including advocating mutual respect, upholding equity and justice, establish a new security framework in the Middle East with the support of the League of Arab States. Now, there's not much love here for Iran, as it speaks about non-proliferation, or for Israel, because it refers to a two-state solution to the Palestinian question. So this Middle Eastern point carries a very clear, strong pro-Arab bent. Because ultimately, Iran is already hostile to the U.S., so there's not much to gain from wooing it. And Israel cannot be realistically split away from the U.S. And it's all about oil anyway. Three, African countries, the African Union, and the sub-regional organizations to resolve regional conflicts. And the conflicts that I mentioned here are hotspots in Horn of Africa, the Sahel, the Great Lakes region, and other areas that could be managed through China, Horn of Africa, Peace, Governance, and Development Conference. In fact, much of the security export by China began here, in North and East Africa, to provide a diplomatic framework for incidents such as China's evacuation from Libya in 2011 and its anti-piracy missions around the Horn of Africa. Beijing coined the term constructive interference. So it all started here. Number four, Latin American and Caribbean countries. In actively fulfilling commitments stated in the proclamation of Latin America and Caribbean as a zone of peace. Now, the efforts here go possibly towards subverting the United States position in the region. At the current turn in South American politics, this finds some fertile ground here, with Argentina already knocking on BRICS' door alongside Iran, which, after all, was accused of standing behind a terrorist who bombed the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires 31 years ago. And number five, where this anti-U.S. inclination is also visible in the mention of the special situation and legitimate concern of Pacific Island countries in regard to climate change, natural disasters, and public health. Here, China's leapfrogging strategy over the first island chain has been a tried and tested strategy for several years now. Now, last month, in addition to this alphabet soup of GDI and GSI, Xi Jinping pitched a new initiative, that is GCI, the Global Civilization Initiative, or Chuanzhou Wenming Changyi a still vague policy that appears aimed at challenging the Western concept of universal values. China's State Council stated, people need to refrain from imposing their own values or models on others. 
What Beijing is trying to achieve here is a wholesale transformation of the signifying that pertains to the way we describe the international system, the system necessary to uphold our values of democracy, rule of law, and accountability that is open, that is non-hierarchical, that is voluntary, and sovereignty-enhancing, and which would be displaced by Beijing's efforts to build a sphere of ideological influence that is coercive and hierarchical. Now, would it be voluntary? Well, only until the stage of capture, whether it's debt capture, technological capture, or ideological capture. If you don't believe it, try to send an email to your friend in China with a word about Taiwan or Tibet or Xinjiang or whatever. It will never get there. Or watch the editing battles on Wikipedia between open source and the Chinese Wu Mao. Or try to communicate on WeChat about any of the topics deemed by the CCP as sensitive. Well, good luck. But once you have adopted the Huawei system, a WeChat app, or an Alipay paying app, and maybe even a CATL battery in your electric vehicle, you are captured, and your participation in the system is no longer voluntary. So listen to Jamie Dimon. China's argument, which it promotes in this new GCI, is that modernization does not have to equal westernization. The failure and frustration of many developing countries to modernize pushes them naturally to this viewpoint. Hence, as discussed previously on Terror Today, a huge role for Japan and South Korea to abolish this myth. Yes, you can modernize with only a marginal level of your country's cultural westernization. And yet, you can embed all the basic freedoms which are at the core of modernization and which were the founding values of the international system starting with the United Nations. Unfortunately, as I have noticed among my friends in Latin America since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the overall sentiment towards Beijing's diplomatic overtures is generally positive. But there are other reasons for it. An article by Chinese Communist Party official last year said that Beijing had already approved 22 billion of 35 billion in lending earmarked for the countries in the region. Which brings us to the second arm of China's expansionism, that is, China debt and debt workarounds. When Xi Jinping announced in 2013 the Belt and Road Initiative, it looked initially as a nifty means to export China's construction overcapacity, accumulated in particular following the extraordinary fiscal effort to infuse 850 billion US dollars into the Chinese economy to protect it against the hurricane of the great financial crisis in 2008. In other words, under the previous premier, Wen Jiabao, China tried to pivot its economic system from the over-reliance on exports to the West, which was bolstered after China's accession to WTO in 2001, over to reliance on public financing, channeled through the so-called policy banks, predominantly the big four state-owned banks, Bank of China, ICBC, China Construction Bank, and Agricultural Bank of China. The problem was that the construction boom unleashed by that program represented 20% of the GDP and was simply too large for what was back then a $4.5 trillion economy, still smaller than Japan's at that time. Five years later, the resulting overcapacity in construction and infrastructure buildup was quite evident, and the idea was to export this capacity, capital, technology, and labor, to developing nations. This was, as usual, a scheme to achieve many things at the same time. It was a scheme to gain political leverage first and foremost, to develop new export connections in those smaller markets for Chinese products, and to open up new, strategically secure pathways connecting PRC to key markets in the West, in particular towards the rich petrol Middle East and towards Europe. Secure, meaning here unaffected by the treacherous oceanic pathways that are still dominated by the potentially hostile U.S. Navy, in particular the United States' Fifth Fleet based in Manama in Bahrain, 
and capable of blocking both the Hormuz Straits and maybe even the Malacca Straits. Of course, the recipients of all this construction largesse could not fund such humongous infrastructure projects, whether hydroelectric, road, rail transportation, or ports. So credit, provided again by China's policy banks, was the integral part of this strategy. And here's the problem. When in the depth of the global financial crisis, I visited some policy banks in Beijing, I was stunned by the missing feature in their lending policies, a complete lack of risk management capability. For a highly leveraged economy, it was quite astounding. Maybe that's what explains the term policy banks. They simply executed policy, whether directed by SPC, that is the State Planning Commission, back in the 1990s, or later by NDRC, National Development and Reform Commission. This is directed lending. But one thing is to direct lending to privileged projects inside the country, as was the case throughout the 1990s and later intensified post-2008, and quite another to provide credit overseas to non-creditworthy partners that typically find it difficult to clinch credit lines from the IMF and from the Western commercial banks. It's much, much tougher if you have insufficient risk management capability. It's now 10 years since the advent of this policy. So what happened since then? Some useful projects were built, Many others were completely wasted, as the famed hydroelectric dam in Ecuador, built on the slope of an active volcano, or an equally infamous road to Nahuatl in mountainous Montenegro. Altogether, some 591 billion worth of construction projects and 371 billion in other investments were deployed. Of course, the objective number one was achieved, political leverage. And indeed, many of China's state-owned construction firms maintained full order books and employment, as Chinese workers were routinely employed at these projects from Central Asia to South Asia to West Africa. But influence ebbs and flows while projects are eventually finalized. And the other enduring legacy of this spending binge is debt. China routinely helped finance the projects executed by its own state-owned companies with debt and interest rates set at commercial levels, on average 3.5%. By comparison, Japanese lending is done on a concessional basis of about half a percent, and you're either a policy lender or a loan shark. Communist China has tried to be both. The outbound credit peaked in 2015 at 57 billion and then shrank to mere 3 billion last year when net flows reversed from interest paid on the investment. But the inevitable inability of debtors to repay the credit lines has now put Chinese lenders at jeopardy. And as Carmen Reinhardt recently revealed in a fascinating paper she co-authored to several others, China is now frantically trying to bail out the borrowers and save its own banks. The trouble is that price at 5%, the cost of these short-term bailouts is even higher than the original debt. This is more than twice what IMF charges for a workaround. China's reluctance to engineer a long-term solution to the plight of the deeply indebted recipients puts in jeopardy the entire global lending system to developing nations. Historically, the private Paris club would work on deal restructuring and, over decades, accumulate much experience in doing just that, sometimes with a political subtext. This was the case with the communist-era Polish debt that was simply written off in the 1990s, or with the suspension of some of the Ukrainian debt more recently. Given that the productivity of the recipients of Chinese loans has not increased from many of those new infrastructure projects, and the return on investment is generally below the 3.5% cost of the projects and counting, the economic viability of the entire Belt and Road Initiative is now in question, but is a scheme to subjugate a large number of countries politically and render them dependent on Beijing's goodwill, it may still work. 
So we went through two levers of China's expansionism that elude simple containment. One is diplomacy, and the other one is predatory credit export. The third one is the trade account and currency regime, and the fourth one is technology. I will continue this series next week. Have a great week.